Today's case covers a mysterious disappearance from a public place, a disappearance that left a lot of people baffled for years. This is the story, Jessica Herringa. Imagine that it's a little after 11 at night. You pull your car into a gas station in Norton Shores, Michigan, a small town that sits on Lake Michigan. You walk into the store, pay for gas, but it's eerily quiet. You look around, and there's no sign of anyone being there. That's exactly what happened to a man on April 26, 2013. The man found it was very odd that no one was in the store, so he called 911. And about 20 minutes later, police were on scene. The clerk that was supposed to be working that night was Jessica Herringa. Her car was still parked in the parking lot, and all of her belongings were left in the store to include her wallet, purse, and there was $400 in cash that was left in the register. So the cops didn't believe that it was a robbery. Inside the store, there didn't appear that there was a struggle anywhere. No shells were knocked over. Everything was in its place. Nothing appeared that it was thrown around. As they walked around the outside of the gas station, the cops found fresh blood and an accessory to a gun. A canine was brought out to try and search the immediate area, but they didn't locate any other evidence. Investigators began working on a timeline for events that night. Jessica began her shift around 4.30 p.m. that day. At 10.55 p.m., the last transaction was made. It was for a cigarette lighter. At 11 that night, a manager and her husband drove by. There was a man that they noticed that was acting very strange. He kept opening and closing the rear hatch to a silver minivan that was parked on the back side of the store. The man then got in the van and he drove away. The manager didn't stop at the time, they just happened to be passing by. At 11.10, that's when the guy pulled up in the gas station but couldn't find Jessica to pay for the gas, so he called the cops. Now, this was 2013, not 1913. So you would expect that there would be some sort of security cameras. But the store didn't have a single camera. And it was actually something mentioned the night before. On April 25th, 2013, a female customer who frequented the store told Jessica that she shouldn't be working so late at night alone. Jessica kind of brushed it off saying that she would be fine. There was a man that was in the store who overheard the conversation and he said that Jessica also had her customers looking out for her. The woman thought that the guy seemed very creepy and believed that Jessica thought the same about him. Investigators were able to track down the person that made the last purchase at 10.55 that night. It was a female and she said that when she went in there, she didn't see any other cars in the parking lot and didn't see anyone else in the store. She said that Jessica seemed to be acting normal. She didn't look nervous or in distress. As a year went by, tips continued to come in on Jessica's disappearance. Her boyfriend was investigated and cleared. A task force was put together for the investigation and began investigating every tip that came in. 
33 search warrants were executed to get cell phone records or computer data, and searches were conducted on different residents that came up during the investigation. But there were no signs of Jessica. But things would take a huge turn in 2016. On April 16, 2016, just 25 miles away from Norton Shores, a 16-year-old girl named Madison was walking on a rural road in Laketon Township. She became lost after walking home from a party. A silver or gray minivan pulled up alongside her. She had been walking for hours, had no idea where she was, didn't have a phone, and she was desperate for help. She felt relieved when the van pulled alongside of her. The driver offered to give her a ride and let her use his cell phone. Once the car began going down the road, the driver locked the doors and then pulled out a handgun. Madison was able to jump out of the moving car and begin running away. At one point, she looked back and saw the man pointing the gun at her, but he didn't chase her or shoot at her. As she ran away, he got back in the van and sped off. Now, I know... A lot of people are probably thinking they would never have gotten in the van to begin with. We've seen horror movies, listened to enough true crime podcasts, and even seen stuff in the news. But she was lost, tired, and I'd venture to say she was probably scared. In the back of her mind, she may have thought it wasn't a good idea. But we all have this part in our mind that say, oh, that stuff won't happen to me. Especially being a teenager, you feel pretty invincible. If she wouldn't have gotten in the car willingly, he probably would have pulled the gun anyways to try and get her in. But the bottom line, getting in a stranger's van is usually a bad idea. But she fought her way out of it and survived. Madison reported this to the police. At the crime scene, investigators found live rounds, which were bullets that weren't fired. The theory is that the guy did try and shoot at Madison as she ran. But one or two things happened. The gun either jammed and bullets came out as he was trying to clear the malfunction, or he panicked and he ejected the rounds when he pointed the gun at her. Which is a lot what you see in movies, when the gun's already loaded, there's a bullet in the chamber and they pull the slide back before they shoot and a bullet comes out. In movies, it's done for the drama of it. But if that's what happened here, it gave good evidence. The investigators started off with 30,000 possible vehicles to go through. They were able to find video footage of a nearby gas station and narrow it down to a certain model and approximate year, then narrowing it down even further to people that lived in the area. And that gave them a list of 31 people who owned that type of van. 31 sounds much better than 30,000. Of the 31 people left, they found an owner and matched the description that Madison gave them. They did a photo lineup with her, and she picked out Jeffrey Willis, a 46-year-old who worked at a furniture manufacturing company. Investigators waited for Jeffrey to leave his house. As he left in his silver minivan, they conducted a traffic stop and placed him under arrest for the kidnapping charges. A search warrant was done on the van and Jeffrey's house. Inside the van, they found a handgun, which was stolen, with the same type of bullets that was left behind at the crime scene of the attempted kidnapping. They also found what was described as a rape kit. There were ropes, other kinds of restraints, sex toys, Viagra, and a syringe loaded with a sedative. But inside the house, things got a lot darker. They found hundreds of videos 
of women being abducted, sexually assaulted, and killed. These weren't videos that Jeffrey made himself, but he was watching them or downloading online. Now, we're going to backtrack a minute. There were a few key things about this gun. First, it was stolen. Investigators found the owner of it, and when she saw the gun, she confirmed that it was hers. But there was a laser attachment missing off of it. Back to the beginning, when I said that there was an accessory left by the blood at the gas station, the accessory was a battery cover, which was identified as a battery cover to a laser that attaches to a gun. But the next piece of evidence is what really connected Jeffrey to Jessica. What is one thing that most people want more than money? If you guessed time, then you're correct. Time is something that we can't get back and we will always wish we had more of. Grocery shopping takes time, but don't worry. That's where Instacart comes in to help. With Instacart, you can spend that extra time catching up on things that you want, like going to the gym, reading a book, or listening to a podcast while you're reading a book at the gym. Instacart also uses its technology to highlight deals to help you save money. The shoppers pick the freshest produce and even keep your eggs safe. Instacart delivers to your door in as fast as one hour. If you use the link in the show notes, it helps support this show. It lets Instacart know that I sent you and you will get a free delivery on your first order of over $10. Now, back to the show. On Jeffrey's computer, there was child pornography, and he had a file labeled VIX, V-I-C-S, which is presumed to be short for victims. In that file, he had two folders, one was labeled RSB and the other was labeled JLH. RSB was Rebecca Sue Bledge. She was a 36-year-old woman who was found deceased with three gunshots to her head after she went on a jog in June of 2014. Shell casings that were found at the crime scene also matched the gun that was found in Jeffrey's van. Inside the folder on his computer were photos of Rebecca the date of her death, and wanted posters that were distributed about the case. The JLH folder? Well, that was for Jessica Lynn Herringa. Inside that folder were photos of Jessica and the date that she disappeared, which was also believed to be the date that she was murdered. Jessica started working at the gas station in August of 2012. From that date, until the time that she went missing in April of 2013, Jeffrey used his credit card at the store at least 15 to 16 times, and that's not including if he ever used cash. So he could have easily been there a lot more times. The last time that he used his credit card there was the night before Jessica went missing, on April 25th, 2013, which is the same night that the customer spoke with Jessica about how she shouldn't be there alone, and then the creepy customer said that Jessica had her customers looking out for her. Now, it wasn't confirmed if that guy was Jeffrey or not, but I'd say there's a pretty strong chance. Police began diving through Jeffrey's phone records. First of all, 
Jeffrey tried saying that he was home with his wife the night that Jessica went missing, but she called his cell phone from the landline phone in their home, and his cell phone data put him in the area of the gas station. Then a very interesting name came up, and through my research, I read two different ways that this came about. One was the phone records, and one was that he came to talk to investigators. It very well could have been that they see this phone number being called around the same time, so investigators asked him to come in to talk. However it worked out, the guy's name was Kevin Bloom. Not only was he Jeffrey's cousin, but he was a sergeant at the Michigan Department of Corrections. And Kevin confessed to investigators about his involvement and Jeffrey's involvement with Jessica's disappearance. He said that he didn't actually have anything to do with her abduction, but that he did help in disposing of her body. He said that around the time of her disappearance, his and Jeffrey's grandfather's house was vacant because he had passed away, and Jeffrey was the caretaker of the house. Jeffrey told Kevin to come over to the house. On April 27th, Kevin went over there. Jeffrey led him to the basement where he observed Jessica. She was nude, face down, and her hands were tied. There was blood coming from her head, and she wasn't moving. Jeffrey told Kevin that he had had sex with her. Kevin helped wrap Jessica up in a tarp and put her body in the back of Jeffrey's van. They then drove out into a wooded area where they buried Jessica's body. But Kevin wasn't able to lead investigators to Jessica's body. Kevin then went back and told investigators that he made all of that up and it was all a lie. But they believed the first story that he gave, and they were also able to use phone records to place him and Jeffrey together the day that Jessica went missing. So Kevin was charged with lying to law enforcement during an investigation, and the lie was that he lied, so there's that. But Kevin was also charged with being an accessory after the fact to Jessica's murder. Before we get into the sentencing, there is one other crime that Jeffrey has been listed as a suspect in, but there hasn't been enough evidence to charge him. Back in 1996, a 15-year-old high school student was found murdered and partially clothed by some hunters in the woods. The girl was reported missing a month prior and was believed to have been a runaway. Jeffrey's name came up just because of his connection to the area. He graduated from that same high school in 1988, and he worked as a janitor for that school district from 1998 to 1999, but he was fired because he was watching porn on an elementary school computer. So with that case, again, he's only listed as a suspect because of his connection to the area. When Jeffrey was charged with Rebecca and Jessica's murder, he was already in the custody for kidnapping and child pornography charges. In November of 2017, Jeffrey was found guilty of Rebecca's murder and was sentenced to life without parole. Jessica's trial took place in May of 2018. Since her body was never found, the defense attorney had a piece of evidence that they believed would get the attention of the jury. Jessica had a diary, and one of her entries she wrote that sometimes she just wanted to run away from everything, which I feel like everyone in the world has that thought at some point. But most people don't run away from a gas station that they're working at, leaving their belongings, their car, and money behind with a trail of blood 
with her creepy van spotted in the back of the store. So, the jury wasn't buying it. There was too much pointing towards Jeffrey. After lawyers did their thing and closed up their arguments, it took the jury about one hour to come back with a guilty verdict. Jeffrey was sentenced to life in prison again. Kevin pled guilty to all of his charges, and honestly, he is the one that I just can't seem to wrap my head around. Imagine being a prison guard going to work every day with people who have committed murder, and every day you knew about an unsolved murder. And I don't know how you do it, but Kevin was sentenced to time served in 2018, which was about two years by that point, which was about two years since he was first arrested. Then he was given five years probation and ordered to wear an ankle monitor. As tragic as these cases were, two things came about from them. One was Rebecca's Law. It was a bill that was passed by the Michigan House of Representatives which now requires convicted defendants to listen to the victim impact statements. This came because Jeffrey refused to listen to the victim impact statements from Rebecca's family at his trial. The other was Jessica's law, which required gas stations to install security cameras or have at least two people working on overnight shifts. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion of this episode of Crime Nerds. Thank you so much for listening.